this week's episode of banter on the parkway i am your host brian from banners on the parkway.com and we are joined as always uh by a man who's been described as michael chiklis without nearly as much muscle mass or any of the charisma it's brad i mean how close to fair would you say that is that started out as really nice i was like oh michael chiklis i can go with this I was a big fan of, was it the shield he was in? Is that when they locked the two guys in a in a shipping container and said whoever comes out gets to live? Uh, that's not really my style for going through life, but I was like, what a what a cool guy. But then you took away all the cool parts. So I guess what you're saying is that I'm bald and old. Yeah. I was, you know, I was more of the commish era of Michael Checklist, but sure. Um <laughs> We got it. Uh, we're also joined by Braden. Now, Braden, I understand you've uh, written a rap about Xavier's uh, games this week. And if we have time at the end, we'll let you perform it. Uh, for now, though, I mean, just you shared it with us before. It's some great bars, but we're going to have you sit on it for now. Is that OK? Yeah, that's good. It's also going to be the first episode of ours that's flagged for explicit content. Um, <clears throat> if we end up not being able to get to that, just follow me on SoundCloud. Uh, it'll be linked in the description of this video and everything. I'm up to 20 followers now, so we're getting there slowly but surely. Cool. Is it gonna be explicit? Are you rapping about Kansas and do you like talk about Grady Dick or something? Because I think that's OK to say if it's a guy's name. Uh, you know, it is okay if it's a guy's name. Maybe some of the the, the connotations that come off of it uh, wouldn't be necessarily work appropriate, but we're derailing already, so I'll go ahead and let us get back on track here. I mean, he's <laughs> rapping about Kansas. Um, he's rapping about Frank Mason, though. <laughs> that's, where he, that's where he veers into some pretty rocky terrain. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, Xavier was in action this week. They went to Gamble Pavilion, and they uh, came away with the victory 82-79. This was a game Xavier led by a bunch at one point, um, but it ended up being a very close game by the end. Uh, so, Braden, I mean, what did we what did we learn about Xavier in this game? Oh, nothing new, really. Uh, <clears throat> You talked about how we had a big lead. Uh, we got that big lead by scoring a lot of buckets, which we know this team is good at. We know they're capable of. After a couple rough showings the week before, it was kind of good to see the offense flowing. Um, Sule, boom, it took him a while to get going, but the start of the second half, I mean, he looked he looked dialed in. Um, I put in an article after the game, he doesn't have like a lightning quick trigger on his release. Um, it's not like Trayvon blew it where the ball barely touches his hands and it's up, but man, he had a couple where his defender was maybe a quarter step behind and he was just letting it fly. Uh, what made this a close game though, was once again, the defense and our inability to stop anybody who's remotely hot. And, uh, Jordan Hawkins was more than remotely hot. He was straight up on fire. Uh, he was doing a lot of catch and shoot running off screens, catching handoffs. And I mean, the dude could not miss there for a while. He just about, willed UConn back into this one. Uh, well, he did will him back into it, but wasn't able to get it over the line. I thought the uh, the defense in the first half was good. 
Uh, weirdly enough, um, I don't know if it was maybe UConn missing shots or uh, so much X's defense was actually on point. They let Andre Jackson shoot as many threes as he wanted to, and uh, he didn't end up taking double digits this time. He only shot the three at the start of the game and decided, nah, that's enough for me. Uh, but the defense on that last possession, I thought was really good. Uh, they switched everything, kept the ball out of Jordan Hawkins hands. And then it, uh, wound up with, I believe it was Tristan Newton, uh, getting a pretty soft foul call, but they were down three. They needed a three. So that foul didn't really do anything to help their winning hopes. Uh, but yeah, X got it across the line in the end. I thought the existential crisis that Andre Jackson had, um, midway through the first half was hilarious to watch at one point in time he caught the ball and his man adam kunkel was double teaming the entry pass to adama sonogo that hadn't happened yet and jackson was just kind of standing at the top of the key and you could just see him like like thinking through everything in his life that had brought him to that point and like if it had been a movie to cut away to him like pensively staring out over the ocean or something because he just, he had no idea what to do. He knew he shouldn't shoot because he'd missed three in a row. He apparently forgot that he could dribble to get closer. And he just kind of stood there. And there's this moment where the whole game paused and all of Gamble kind of took a breath to see what was going to happen. And Andre Jackson stood there just having his confidence crumble around him. Uh, it was really amusing to watch. But I thought Des Claude, guys, what a game he had. I banged it on Adama Sonogo two-handed, uh, just a one-foot, jump out of the lane where he just kind of kept going up in the air like Ed Sumner used to do and then took it right at Donovan Klingon late in the game too. Uh, he really came out and played very well. His offensive rating was 162. Um, he took the one three that was a backboard ball, but we won't get too much into that. Uh, he had a really, really good game. I was impressed with how tough he played. I'd just like to jump in for a second and say that I've developed a very healthy sports hatred for Donovan Klingon almost immediately. Uh, he gives me a, his face gives me a real Sean McDermott vibe, uh, and that's not a good thing. Um, so happy to see Des Claude drive straight at him and pick up that foul call. But my goodness, that dude's annoying. I don't know why he just is. He's just a big goober out there. Yeah, I'll you know maybe like a like a darker haired Joey Bronk, you know, or who was that dude from Marquette before Theo John Fisher kind of reminded me of him too. Uh, anyway, basically anyone on the other team who's big, uh, I don't like, that's not entirely true because Erlington, he was like six, eight. It wasn't the bigness. We were uh, measuring on that guy though. <clears throat> No, that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think Claude really stepped up as well as Jerome Hunter. I think Xavier's bench was, I mean, the starters for the most part were, were pretty good, but um, Xavier's bench was really what got them this win. And I think Xavier's bench uh, combined for 17 points. Uh, UConn was only able to get six points off of their bench. UConn's bench only had uh, four rebounds combined. Uh, Jerome Hunter had three and Des Claude had four by himself. So I really thought those two guys um, came in and gave Xavier some huge minutes, especially Hunter with the um, confusion over Zach Fremantle's foul situation and then ultimately Zach Fremantle fouling out 
having only played 21 minutes. Uh, I thought uh, Coach Miller pointed it out in the press conference, but they really provided Xavier a lot of lift uh, in that game, which brings us to Saturday where Xavier went into, I mean, one of the tougher places in the country to go. I, I always say, you, you go into Intrust, you go into the CHI Health Center, you just hope everyone leaves healthy. You know, you're not getting a W. You're not coming out of there with a W. And uh, so it was Xavier 67, Creighton 84 on the um, pink out game for Creighton, which Xavier played in last year as well. Um, I mean, did we learn anything new about Xavier in this game, or is it just that their defense – is not very good and when they can't get stops they really struggle it kind of reminded me of that old peyton manning commercial where he was trying to learn how to trash talk your defense is offensive uh yeah i mean i i guess we learned that occasionally your demons catch up to you uh both in life and in basketball uh xavier did the things badly that they do badly they didn't do the things well that they usually do well um and that will make you lose a basketball game uh sule boom was weirdly passive i thought um it reminded me of trayvon blewett against florida state um if i'm allowed to reference that nope (laughs) (laughs) not really seeking the ball i thought they did a good job on him defensively but they didn't show anything that you wouldn't expect xavier to be able to game plan around but i don't know i the team didn't show a lot of fight in the second half, frankly. They they made a little run um, behind Adam Kunkel, who was really uh, – had a nice game, I thought. Gave it everything he had, but it kind of looked like we got down double digits and sort of accepted our fate in this one, as opposed to last year when they came out of the half and went on that 29-2 to run. Uh, this year it kind of just faded into a loss. I know Coach Miller said after the game – that Creighton's just a really good team um, and they're tough to go play, but they are a good team, but they shouldn't be beating Xavier that badly on the road. I don't think that, I mean, by 17, that's getting hammered. That's not being to a good team. That's getting punked. I mean, over the past month, Creighton is the fourth best team in the country. I think since Big East play started uh, from a metrics standpoint, they have been, um, by far, the 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 well, not by far. Marquette's also been really good, but Creighton has been the best team in the Big East since Big East play started. Uh, and I don't know that there's a lot of um, maybe not from a results standpoint, but certainly from a uh, the way they're playing standpoint. Uh, so on some level, I think this loss was kind of understandable. Um, I do agree with you though that. It did seem like Xavier really kind of, uh, once that 12-2 run happened in the second half, they cut it to six, and then Creighton punched back. Uh, Xavier never really, uh, never really conjured another another rally, or even looked like conjuring another rally. And when you end the game, I mean, Colby Jones was the only starter playing for any of like the last five, six minutes. Um, do we think, I mean, Steve Lapis was on the call. And God, he's brutal. Brutal. There, 
there was no shortage of dumb stuff being yelled. Um, and one of the things, but one of the things he was talking about, and I don't know, I guess we'll discuss it and decide, was he dumb saying this or just everything else he said? One of the things he was talking about was he felt like Coach Miller had kind of um, sat down, uh, you know, Nunji and Fremantle and Hunter at various times and was trying to send a message. Do it, I mean, did that feel like the coach trying to send a message toward the end of the game about, you know, playing hard? Or did it feel like he was maybe trying to keep a few minutes off the legs of people who had been playing a ton and that game was beyond reach? I don't know. Braden, what feel did you get from that? I feel more like the second option there. I mean, Fremantle and Nunji both got in early foul trouble, so that obviously got their game minutes down a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I'd say it's more likely that. I mean, if you're on the road in one of the toughest places to play in the country, as we know, uh, if you're down that big and you don't think that the comeback is coming, uh, it's just not your day, why not You know, <clears throat> get those guys off the floor for a minute? I mean, Zach Fremantle's been hot lately, but he's been playing a lot. Jack Nunji has been playing a lot. Uh, Jerome Hunter is all energy all the time. Uh, he's been playing a lot off the bench. So, you know, we saw some Cesar Edwards towards the end of the game. Uh, I, I'd honestly lean more towards that because I don't think that uh, Coach Miller's trying to send a message 20-some-odd games into the season about why he thinks it's important to play hard. I think those guys understand that they're expected to play hard. And when it's not your day, uh, it's not your day. And, you know, may as well get a few minutes off the legs and look ahead to Providence. Cause you know, you got a, another tough stretch of games coming up Just start gearing up for that because I mean, this one was dead and buried. Yeah. I mean, and it didn't <clears throat> seem like he was livid or anything. You would expect a coach who was mad at players for not showing enough effort or something like that to be irate and he was at one point in time very clearly with the defensive effort but it's not like he took those guys out and didn't slap fives with them or like flipped them off as they walked past him or something like that he yeah I think he kind of recognized that this one was a done deal might as well get some people some rest and also I mean it was a foul trouble thing when the game was a contest he couldn't run everybody out there because of some really poor officiating um I'm especially thinking of Jack Nungy's second foul where there was a foot between him and the other person and he still got called for it. You can't leave him out there. And then by the time the game was, you know, in question, Fremantle and Nungy played and then it ran back out to a 15-point lead. Uh, you know, why bother? Yeah, I I would tend to agree. I, I don't think that the coach was trying to send a message. Um, also, because this isn't junior high, so coaches don't really send messages by benching people. You know, if he wants to send a message, he actually has a press conference right afterwards where people ask him and he's allowed to say whatever he wants. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Again, uh, yeah, I don't like Steve Lapis as an announcer. I don't know him as a person. Anyway, uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, that one didn't go well for Xavier. Um, and it kind of brings up the question, I mean, UConn is a team that is uh, spiraling right now. 
they uh, have played pretty poorly over the last, I don't know, well, since Xavier beat them uh, the first time. And Creighton is a team that's on fire. So would you feel better had the results been reversed? And Xavier had been able to beat Creighton, but but lost to UConn. I think we went into this week saying, you know, 0-2 was a real possibility and 1-1 and would be an outcome we would all take. And then as I drove to work Saturday after the game, I didn't feel very happy about 1-1 and because it had, I think that's when I put this in here, it didn't feel very good to me at the time, partly because of the nature of the loss. Um yeah, I do think I'd feel better if they had been flipped around, even if they'd moved to flip the fixtures, even if we'd lost to Creighton in the midweek and then beat UConn on the weekend. I think part of being a fan is you react a little bit to each game as it happens. And when the last thing on your mind is a 17-point loss in front of a whole arena of people wearing pink, uh, you know what? That's not doesn't leave a real good taste in your mouth with a battle for the top of the big East coming up, you know, but we, I was looking back at what we wrote about the Yukon win. Uh, you know, I was really excited after that, especially with Des Claude and you can wash that away by getting destroyed on the road real quick. I don't know that it made me feel any better. Uh, if we reversed it, obviously, like you said, Creighton's hot, Yukon's not, <clears throat> uh, but as far as the results go, I mean, they're both, Q1 road games, you go one and one, it's going to do the same thing to your resume as of right now. Uh, UConn's still seventh in the net somehow. Uh, they're sixth in Ken Palm. I mean, they're still a good team. Um, they've just been struggling recently. So the fact we were able to go into their home court and their sharpshooter caught fire and we didn't have any answer for them and we still got the win, I think that's a good sign. Obviously, like Brad said, getting punked by Creighton doesn't really make you feel any better, but they are also uh, one of the hottest teams in the country right now. You're playing on the road. They got tough matchups all over. Like, it's just not a good matchup for Xavier at a lot of positions there. Um, so, you know, you complete the sweep of UConn. You split with Creighton, who's a tough team to match up against. Uh as, as far as the results go, either way, you're one and one in Q1 this week with two very tough games uh one and one either way wouldn't have made me really feel that much differently to be honest with you uh but getting a win out of this week i think was important yeah i i think um everybody going into the week would well not everybody i'm not gonna speak for everyone but i think most people going into the week would say one and one is pretty good result uh but once you get to one and oh uh no one wants one and one anymore <laughs> You know, uh, that's just nature of uh, fandom. So nobody goes, oh, good. Now we can lose the other game and I won't be sad. Um, so, yeah, I would say, I mean, on a timeline perspective, I would feel better if the results were reversed and we were coming off a win rather than a loss. But I don't think that either of those is going to be a bad loss, and I don't think either of those is going to not be a valuable win. So I don't know that it matters which one we won and which one we lost. Um, I, 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 I was just going to say, you know, 
Braden said he didn't understand how UConn was still seventh or, you know, that seems surprising. I actually did have a little bit of information on that. Our boy Jesse Moyer, who uh, tweeted at us earlier in the week to ask, you know, why is Xavier fourth in the conference in the net and Ken Palm when they're doing so well in terms of record? Um, and af- actually, at that point in time, were undefeated against UConn, Marquette, and Creighton. He tweeted that before the before Saturday's game, while we were all in a much better headspace. And it comes down to Ken Palm and the net try to measure efficiency. Um, and we, I think the human impulse is to rate head-to-head. Xavier beat UConn twice, ergo we must be better and should be ranked ahead of them. But Ken Palm and the net don't look at that at all. Um, there is no recency bias in them either. Every game is weighted the exact same in their predictive metrics, not um, something like SOR, strength of record, that is a schedule or a results-based metric. So it just looks at efficiency and margin of victory isn't something that the net factors in on its own, but margin of victory does impact your efficiency. So if you're a team like UConn or like Marquette that started the year out by just obliterating some people, that's going to make your efficiency numbers a lot better. I mean, UConn beat UNC Wilmington, which is actually a decent team um, by 36. Well, if you do something like that to somebody, that's going to make your efficiencies a lot better. And, you know, Marquette hammered Baylor, who's really good. Um, That also makes your efficiency a lot better. Xavier won a couple big games, but Xavier, you know, also beat Fairfield by 13, um, didn't put Montana away until late. So they didn't have a chance to make their efficiency numbers look as good. So that's why in the net and in the Ken Palm, X doesn't look quite as good as they do just when it comes to head to head. If you throw strength or record in, and again, this is done before uh, getting obliterated by Creighton. All of a sudden, you vault Xavier right up to the very top of the Big East. And then, you know, by SOR rank, you're looking at Xavier, Marquette, UConn, Providence, Creighton as the top five. And I think that's something maybe people would be would find a little bit more palatable. Yeah, I think one of the things we look at a lot and maybe as we get on to um, whether or not we're, we're better off than last year is the wins above bubble ranking. And right now, Xavier is the best in the Big East and wins above bubble because it is a results-based ranking. Uh, They're eighth in the country. And when you look at the teams that are ahead of them, it's all power conference teams in Houston. And it's all teams that are contending toward the top of their conferences. you got Purdue, Alabama, Kansas, Arizona, Texas, and Kansas State. So that's pretty good company to be in um, as far as a results-based metric. Uh, the difference being um, when you look at predictive <laughs> Xavier is just drugged down by the fact that they've not really blown anyone out in like a month and a half. So that is kind of uh, <laughs> why that looks the way it looks. But kind of looking around the country, um, one of the things that uh, came up this weekend is that um, not just the referees who worked Xavier's game on Saturday suck. Most referees suck. Uh, in college basketball. Um, And I'm sure a lot of our Bengals fans would contend that NFL referees suck. Um, So anyway, um, sympathy toward you guys. Um, 
I didn't mean to laugh. I was coughing. That was a cough. That wasn't a laugh. I don't think it's funny. Anyway, uh, John Higgins is uh, is a, a pretty prominent referee. Works mostly in the Big Ten. Uh, Brad, can you just walk us through John Higgins' workload this weekend and tell us if anyone could do a good job at anything if they are working the schedule he's choosing to work? So John John Higgins went at Rutgers on Tuesday, and then his next game, this is just – so everybody knows where Rutgers is, or at least has a general idea, East Coast. Uh, his next game was Wednesday, the very next day, at San Diego, uh, which is – just about as far away as you can possibly get. Uh, he then went at Oregon State Thursday, really graciously gave himself Friday off so he could get to Stanford. From Stanford, he went to Purdue on Sunday and then turned around and flew to Texas on Monday. Uh, Joel figured it out. That's about 4,500 miles of travel with one off day. Um, and in there, he did a, I believe, I cannot remember which it is, but one of these games was a late tip. I think it was a Purdue was a late tip Sunday, and then a Texas was an early. No, that's wrong. Stanford was the late tip Saturday, and then Purdue was the early tip Sunday. So he could have gotten about three and a half hours of sleep uh, tops in there. Um, and I don't mean to demean any other professions. I know police officers and firefighters and nurses all work uh, ludicrous hours. But this is just insane. I mean, he's flying literally across the country. He bisects it east to west, going Rutgers to San Diego, and then kind of does a little north-south action from Purdue down to Texas. Uh, no wonder there's some cognitive decline in our officiating if this is what they're doing. And John Higgins, while this is an ex a semi-extreme example, it's not outside the norm for people to do stuff like this. Um, and the human brain is just not made to do this. You're going to have cognitive deficits. They're going to lead to things like not being able to count to five to figure out if Zach Fremantle should be allowed to continue playing or not. Um, so I think when a lot of people are screaming at the refs, you got to take into account that they're doing stuff like this, but they're kind of doing it to themselves. And this goes back to the one thing that we have harped on for years now there is no general oversight for these guys um if john higgins wants to do this there is no one other than whoever compiled this for espn there's no ncaa or big east or big 10 chair of officiating who's going to look at it and say john you can't fly across the country twice in the span of six days with one day off and still do a good job there just isn't anybody to do that so that's why the refs are kind of crap. Um, that's not really an excuse for them, because like you said, he chooses to do this to himself, which I know the money's good and we're all out here just chasing paper like Bone Thugs and Harmony. But come on, man, like Rutgers to San Diego. That's insane. Right. I mean, what my understanding is, is this is scheduled on a seniority basis. And John Higgins has done this for a really long time which is why people recognize his name. And so he can say, yeah, I want to work the Rutgers game, and I also want to work that San Diego game. And if there's someone who is better positioned to work one of those games, if they don't have the seniority he has, they're just out of luck, which is also why it's the same guys over and over again. You don't see a lot of new officials because 
if these same guys want to keep working that kind of schedule, you know, four months a year or whatever, they get to do it and no one is stopping them from doing it. And I think very few people would argue that it's not hurting the product on the floor, that the referees are up to the standard of play that the NCAA currently has. But uh, again, the NCAA does not do a good job, I don't think, of promoting its own product or really uh, ensuring the quality of its own product. Uh, they do do a good job of making as much money as they possibly can off their product, though. That's the one thing the NCAA is great at. So um, kind of looking around the power conferences, we, we, we thought we would just round up kind of, I guess, the, the conferences and who is uh, doing well in those. So obviously that's going to start with the Big 12, because when you talk about what the best conferences are, the Big 12 is currently um, far and away the best conference in college basketball. So, Braden, what is the Big 12 looking like this year? Is it another ho-hum Kansas is going to win the thing again? No, it is not. Uh, top to bottom, the Big 12 is tough. Uh, Texas Tech is currently the basement dweller in the Big 12. They're 63rd in the Ken Palm and just pulled off a huge comeback against Iowa State the other night. So there's no easy nights in the Big 12. Uh, kind of towards the top, though, you obviously have Kansas. Uh, Jalen Wilson has been playing out of his mind recently. Uh, Kansas State, uh, under Jerome Tang, uh, who's a first-year head coach, has been really good. They beat Kansas, uh, I believe it was a couple weeks ago at this point. Uh, they've looked really good so far this year. Uh, Iowa State is right up there. They are just kind of a snapshot of them. They are very good on defense. They're kind of meh on the offensive end. Uh, Texas uh, is still uh, top of the conference as of right now. They are seven and two in the Big 12. Uh, handling the coaching transition, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, decently well. Uh, they did lose to Tennessee in the Big 12 SEC challenge, but Tennessee is also first in the Ken Palm right now and is a very tough team to score on, and that was at Tennessee. Uh, Baylor is, I don't want to say middle of the pack because middle of the pack in the big 12 probably has you winning a lot of other conferences, including the ACC this year. Uh, Baylor's five and four in the big 12 right now, but they are also an elite offensive team. Uh, they're kind of, uh, Xavier-esque in that their defense is not really there right now. Uh, it's tough top to bottom. I mean, West Virginia is two and six right now, and we saw how good they can be when we played them earlier this year. Uh, this is just a really tough conference. Um, Alabama played Oklahoma and got absolutely run off the floor by Oklahoma, who's only two and six in the conference right now. So that just tells you the big 12 top to bottom, very tough. Um, I don't know how many teams they're going to get in the tournament at this point. It's going to be a lot, uh, but a lot of it, a lot of these teams are just from beating up on each other, not going to quite have that resume. Uh, they're just going to have a lot of Q1 and Q2 losses that aren't really going to look that good to anybody on the committee. Uh, but the top of this conference realistically goes Texas down through Baylor. And in there, you got K-State, Iowa State, Kansas, and TCU. Uh, all those teams are very good. And at this point, I think Texas and K-State probably have the best chance of uh, – winning the conference regular season. And I say good for them. 
uh, because I'm I'm kind of bored with the Jayhawks at this point. I, they're fun to watch. They're a great team, but it's it's just boring. It's just boring. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that is a loaded conference. You look at I, Texas Tech isn't going to make the tournament, but other than that, anybody in that, everybody in that conference has a claim that, that they should be in based on what they've done already. Um, second best conference then would be the big 10. Now, Brad, unlike the big Te- 12, the big 10 has had uh, the cream rise to the top here and everyone is chasing uh, the team that's far and away the best. Yeah, and that's Purdue. Um, this comes down a lot to Zach Eady, who is getting a, just a ton of pub all the time and probably deserves that because he's probably going to be the player of the year. He travels all the time, but I saw somebody tweet the other day that he gets away with it because he's so tall that referees can't both watch both the basketball when he holds it up high and his feet. So he can kind of hold it up high and then take a whole bunch of little steps running around. So I kind of pictured like a little kid um, taking those little short choppy steps. I'm not sure if that's what he does, but it was funny to me. Um, The Big Ten's loaded. Uh, Like you said, Texas Tech's probably not going to get into the Big 12. There's two teams you can say for sure aren't going to make it out of the Big Ten. That's Nebraska, who's still 100th in the Ken Palm, and then Minnesota, who's horrible. Um, Other than that, anybody could get hot and go on a run wisconsin and michigan are two teams that you think of normally of being really good wisconsin is 74th in the net and michigan is 83rd but there's so many q1 wins available in this conference that you know you put together a four or five game winning streak and all of a sudden you're shooting right back into at least bubble contention um northwestern is having a really good year they're an interesting team They don't really fill it up, but they play good defense along those same lines as Rutgers, um, who John Higgins may or may not have seen if he was able to keep his eyes open. But they're 22nd in the net, and they are second in the nation on defense and 118th in offense. Um, I just wonder what would happen like if Marquette would play Rutgers, I think could be a really interesting game to see. It would either end like 95 to 93 or like 32 to 30. Um, Rutgers is a fun team. I like seeing teams that aren't necessarily powerhouses get in. Iowa has fought their way all the way back from that initial horrid loss to get back above what we kind of think of as that net cut line back up to 36th. Um, Sure do love to see Fran McCaffrey doing well, but that just warms the heart. Penn State's good. Like I said, Michigan is okay. Ohio State is going to be a really interesting bubble question. They're hanging right around there. But the Big Ten is loaded with all sorts of uh, good teams. And then Michigan and Wisconsin, not too far off and could make a run. I think Sparty might be in a little bit of trouble this year. Um, They have a good team, but that's not quite enough to help them rack up the wins that they need. They need to grab a couple. And right now they've passed up their two best chances by losing to Purdue twice, uh, once in a really good game and then just getting nuked on Sunday. Uh, they play a away game at Rutgers. Then they got Maryland and Ohio State. But again, they're in the same spot as these teams in these really good conferences where you win three straight and all of a sudden you're going to shoot way up the net. So the Big 12 and the Big 10 have really separated themselves as excellent conferences this year. 
Okay, so the next conference to look at would be the SEC, where um, one of the two power conference teams that is somehow worse than Georgetown resides, that's South Carolina Gamecocks, who earlier this year won at Rupp Arena. I don't know if you guys knew that, um, but they did. Anyway, they are 243rd in adjusted efficiency, which is uh, bad if you don't if you don't already know that. The SEC, Alabama is currently undefeated at 8-0. They uh, just got destroyed by Oklahoma. Uh, luckily for them, that's a non-conference game. But obviously, with some of the controversy, well, not controversy, with what went on with Darius Miles there, I, I don't know that it's a controversy because they immediately kicked him off the team but um you you could have seen them stumble they they haven't Brandon Miller is their star the best freshman in the country um this season and uh they are leading the pack Tennessee and Texas A&M are both seven and one and they're both they're very different teams Tennessee is the number one ranked defense in the country they um just smother people especially beyond the three-point arc they are currently seven and one their lone loss coming to kentucky uh which breaks my heart um and they are a team that is probably going to be fighting toward the one line toward the end of the season texas a&m is seven and one in the sec and probably is a team that's trying to fight their way off the bubble and avoid the same fate as last year. Although this year they'd probably win the NIT because <clears throat> they don't have uh, the steamroller <laughs> in the NIT with them, hopefully. <laughs> um, and then you got Auburn, Kentucky, Florida, um, and Missouri are kind of the next tier. Um, those are all teams that have had good wins this year, but haven't stacked up enough good wins to really stake their claim that they're, um, you know, not going to be a bubble team come the middle of March. And then beyond that, I mean, it's a really bad kind of bottom half of the conference, except for Arkansas, who got really good wins out of conference and is three and five in conference play. They're missing a couple of people that were really important to them uh, in non-conference. And they have just kind of hit the skids as SEC play play started. But the rest of that conference is really just kind of playing to ruin each other's years. Uh, LSU's one in seven. Uh, Ole Miss is one in seven. Mississippi State, who got off to a good start this year, is one in seven. And, of course, South Carolina is one in seven. All they're trying to do is be resume poison for their conference um, fellows. So what? Bede has to leave for work. Bye, Bede. See you guys. Raiding <laughs> off the podcast. Sorry, folks. No rap this week. He'll get it next week. He'll get it. Anyway, um, so Brad, do you want to run down the Pac-12 here, and I will take a look at the ACC? Yeah, the one thing I was going to say about the SEC is that Florida – uh, dropped out of being a Q1 game. They're 51st in the net now, so obviously that has an impact on uh, on Xavier's resume because that cost Xavier a Q1 win. With the quads now, it's kind of it's funny to watch through the season going, and all of a sudden you can pick up or lose Q1 wins based on games that happened two months ago. Um, out in the Pac-12, things are good. 
uh, better than they have been going. Of course, there's a huge shakeup coming in the Pac-12, which is going to impact the Big Ten. But that league has got, I'd say, a team that separated itself at the top in UCLA uh, is eight and two in conference, fifth in the net. Then you got Arizona that's also really close, is 10th in the net at eight and three. And then there's a gap. Uh, Utah, USC, Oregon, maybe Arizona State have a shot at getting in um, if they put together a good run. But it's, it's the bottom half of this conference that's kind of dragging everybody down. Washington State, Colorado, Stanford, Oregon State, California, and Washington are just not very good. Um, some of those teams, Washington State, Colorado, aren't bad, but they're going to keep um, they're going to be resume poison, and they're going to keep the other teams from being able to rack up the big wins. Um, I think UCLA is a a tough team this year. They're third in adjusted efficiency. They they look good. Um, I think UCLA and Arizona are both probably title contenders coming out of the Pac-12. But as we're wrapping up the power conferences here, we're kind of getting into those where there's a little bit of dross down at the bottom. Uh, And I mean, like California, 256th in adjusted efficiency and 356th in pace. So if you go to a California game, you're going to watch bad basketball that's very slow. Um, And that'll get them to three and 18. And I guess probably in Cal with the other things to do, Uh, Student attendance is probably not great at those games. I did want to mention, though, were I John Higgins and had seniority and could pick where I went, I think I'd just bounce back and forth between, like, Pepperdine, Cal, and San Diego. Like, why why are you in Rutgers in January, man? Like, you can go wherever you want, and you you pick New Jersey? I don't know about that. I mean, if for nothing else, then the weather. You know, it's cold. Right, that's that's what I'm saying, like. I'd be like, uh, I'm going to do the Hawaii game and then the UCLA game and then another Hawaii game and then another USC game. You know, like, what is he doing? Anyway, um, yeah, I think UCLA is going to be a tough team in in March because they have a great defense and they have uh, Jaime Jaquez, who is a guy they can count on to come up with big baskets. So I think they're one of those teams that probably can make a deep run. Um, just based off one dude getting hot and their defense shutting everyone else down. So the worst power conference um, is the ACC. I always forget. I said there are two teams worse, power conference teams worse than Georgetown. There are actually three. So there's Cal, there's South Carolina, and then I always forget about Louisville um, (laughs) because God has forgotten about Louisville. (laughs) They are two and 19. And I don't know if you saw the press conference. Apparently, Kenny Payne wanted his team to play with more swagger. And so he told him to start talking more trash. And L. Ellis was in a press conference and he was like, I don't know how much trash I can talk when we're two and 19 because, you know, all they have to say is you're two and 19. And uh, it's a good point, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, swagger when, like, you haven't won since. Have they won this year? No, they I, haven't. Their best win was Florida A&M on the 17th of December of 2022. Like, and they won that by six. Like, how do you swag in guys like, yeah, we, we crushed the Rattlers kind of at home by six. And the thing is, not only are they not winning, I mean, they're getting 
demolished most nights. Um, you look at some of their recent results, and I mean, they lost to a really bad Notre Dame team by 14. Um, they lost to Pittsburgh by 21. They lost to North Carolina by 21. I mean, it's not even like they're keeping games within like single digits and bounces are going against them. Most nights, they're out of it by the final media timeout. Syracuse, they managed to keep within a point. But I think Louisville is you're, – you're going to start playing Louisville roulette because Georgetown roulette's over. And if they beat someone this year, I mean, that is horrendous for whoever they beat. But anyway, the ACC at the top is not all that strong, um, or at least not in terms of what you think of when you think of the ACC. Virginia is having a nice year. Uh, the, the team at the top of the conference and standings is Clemson, who um, really hasn't, like, during non-conference play, they didn't really beat anyone of note, I guess. Uh, they lost to South Carolina, <laughs> who's bad, as we pointed out. They lost to Iowa. They beat Penn State. But, I mean, you look at their non-conference schedule, and they've not really – accomplished a lot and then they got into conference play and are 10 and one so far their lone loss is at wake forest they have beaten duke um they beat um you know nc state pittsburgh virginia tech all decent teams and all teams that you would you know it they're good wins to get because they're easily they could easily have been losses but um they're leading this conference without necessarily being all that convincing of a resume. Uh, if you look at their most similar resumes on, on uh, Bart Torvik, I mean, out of the top 10, four of the teams missed the NCAA tournament. The average seed is a 10.5, and only one of the teams made it out of the round of 64. So that is who is leading the ACC right now. Uh, Duke has not been great. Uh, they've been pretty good, but um, not what we're used to seeing out of Duke. North Carolina was ranked number one to start the year and then fell completely out of the rankings. Miami, Florida has been all right, but there's just not a lot here in the ACC. It's a down year for them. And that's why um, from an efficiency ranking standpoint, they're closer to the Mountain West than they are any other power conference. Uh, you know, you got the bottom of this conference kind of dragging them down, but the top of this conference is not all that strong either. So it's not a great year for the ACC. Um, and that's kind of the look around the country um, as far as the other conferences go. So are we better off on the bubble this year than last year, Brad, kind of going back toward, to Xavier? Uh, we referenced the wins above bubble metric earlier, but is Xavier in a better spot right now than they were this time last year? So if you're looking at wins above bubble, I'll let you talk about that. But in terms of net um, and Ken Palm efficiency, which are things that I'm sure that the committee does look at wins above bubble and does use that. And that's Bart Torvik's really good measure of how he thinks teams stack up. But we know that the, the main sort for the committee is going to be the net. And they're also going to talk about Ken Palm, and in terms of those, we're worse off than we were last year. Um, you go back to 
January 30th of 2022, uh, which I recognize is, is not what today's date is. Oh, man, I just realized I don't know what today's date is. I, I think it's the 31st. Um, I, I don't have to work today, so I just forget things. Uh, you go back to January 30th of 2022, and not only were the Bengals still in the playoffs then, but Xavier... Oh. Uh, yeah, sorry. Xavier was like, I will just before everybody else can jump in and point it out. Yes, we are Cleveland fans. And I know the Browns have not been in the playoffs either of those years, but I am an inverter hater and will continue hating. Uh, X was 19th in the net and 22nd in the Ken Palm after the Creighton win last year. Uh, we went to Creighton, got hammered in the first half, and then came out on that ridiculous 29 to 2 run, which completely flipped the game around. So 19th in the net is really good. 22nd in the Ken Palm is at the very least solid for a high major team. Uh, this year, again, Xavier's 22nd in the Ken Palm, but down to 27th in the net, uh, which is maybe not concerning yet, but is verging on concerning. Um, we're going to get into one of the reasons later, a big reason why that'll be concerning based on roster construction. But X just isn't in the place that they were last year. Last year, we had four Q1 wins. This year, we have five. Thanks, Florida. Um, last year, we had no Q3 losses at this point. This year, we already have one. So for all the good feeling around the team and the thought that, you know, it's back on the tracks, in reality, uh, Xavier's in a worse position this year than they were last year at least in terms of resume. And I think that's really important to emphasize because that's just a snapshot of this individual day. Um, and on this day last year, or yesterday last year, Xavier looked really, really good. We had no way of knowing that they were going to go two and eight down the stretch and just completely throw away the amazing start to the season that they'd had. Um, this team is 17 and five. Last year, X was 15 and five at this point. So, we're all, you know, feeling like this year's going better. In reality, it's it's a little bit worse. I wouldn't say much worse, but it this season has not been as good resume-wise as last year had been to this point. But now we get to this last 11-game stretch, whereas last year we were looking at the last 10-game stretch and went 2-8. and eight. And I at least feel a little better than to think we're going to go 3-8 and eight or 2-9 and nine or something like that uh, to cap the stretch run this year. And if we do that, then we'll look back and say, well, the team was put together better this year, coached better this year, and made the tournament. But just strictly, you know, you want to chop it in to take a look at one day. No, X is not better off now than we were a year ago. Okay, so that's, I mean, citing the net and Ken Palm and things like that, citing um, Wins above bubble, which just counts what you already have in the bag. Xavier is a lot better this year than they were at this point last year. Last year on January 31st, they were 20th in the country, which is good. Um, obviously, being 20th in the country in anything is good. They had two and a half wins above bubble at that point. This year, um, Xavier's eighth in the country. They have 3.6 wins above bubble, so an entire win better, um, which right now, uh, two and a half wins above bubble would put you 19th. So it, it's a fairly similar um, field 
as last year, but Xavier has done more to this point, I would contend, than they had at this point last year. Now, one of the problems that Xavier ran into last year is that the big wins they got in the non-conference did not age that well. The Ohio State win didn't age that well because Ohio State turned out to not be as good as everyone thought they were going to be. And I think that might be a little bit of what Xavier's running into here as well. Florida has not aged very well as a win. West Virginia is still really good in metrics, but their record is not not good. Um, they've not done well in the Big 12 so far. So that'll be something to keep an eye on as well is especially those two wins, can those two teams put together a little bit of uh, a resume themselves that kind of helps prop up Xavier's resume. One of the things that was interesting Saturday, the game immediately following Xavier's was Houston versus Cincinnati, which I chose not to watch because I had sworn off basketball. And um, <clears throat> But Cincinnati was in that game late. And if they had won, that would have really helped Xavier because Cincinnati could, in theory, become a Q1 game if they pick off Houston and um, whoever else is good in the AC, I guess Houston's bench. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, so right now I think it's actually looking better for Xavier than it did at this point last year from a... Uh, what they have in the bank already perspective. But I mean, yeah, from a metrics perspective right now, Xavier was 19th on Torvik last year. Um, sitting here today, they're 22nd um, and their efficiency is not as good. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a reason to think this team will finish stronger than the team last year, but there was every reason to think at this point last year that the team was going to not just get into the tournament, but get into a tournament with a, a solid seed. So um, that's not to like rain on anybody's parade or anything. It's just, you know, Xavier was pretty good and uh, then weren't. <laughs> so really, anyway. really weren't. <laughs> like, really, what? really weren't. We're very not good uh, for the last month of the season. I think having already swept UConn is big uh, for this team. Speaking of wins that might not age well. But, um, you know, there was a lot in front of this team at this point last year. And there's a lot in front of this team this year. I mean, still have to play Providence twice. Still have to go to Marquette. Uh, thank God we don't have to go to Creighton again. But um, anyway, you got uh opportunities here but they've already taken some of their big opportunities i think so uh getting to some of the questions <clears throat> obviously um one of the things that has been the subject of a lot of discussion on the last couple of days is zach Fremantle and his health uh rumors flying that zach Fremantle has re-injured the foot that kept him out for the beginning of last season I can't confirm or deny that because I don't know. <laughs> I'm not like playing coy here. I'm as clueless as anyone. I do know uh, probably the person who would know would be Adam Baum. And he is uh, playing his cards close to the vest on this one. He is saying there's nothing for certain. 
And uh, that's the only update he's really given. So we got one from Ethan Detter. Can you give a Fremantle update, which I already gave? It's a shrug, Ethan. Um, and how that impacts the rest of the season. Zach's really in contention for Big East Championship. What are the keys to winning versus Providence? So, Brad, I mean, this team right now <clears throat> sits atop the Big East. They're 9-2. and two. If you remove Zach Fremantle from the equation, is this team still a contender for the Big East title? No. Uh, this team goes from a team that you can see getting scalding hot and making a really deep run, um, one of those great Xavier runs, to a team that has a huge, huge problem. Um, Zach Fremantle has been excellent this year. Uh, there's no two ways about it. He has been the player that we all thought that he very much could be. Uh, he's He grabs a quarter of the defensive rebounds that are available when he's out there. Um, that's just a freakishly high number for a guy who's really, he's big, but he's not huge. Um, he's been extremely efficient offensively this year. Uh, if he could stop turning the ball over quite as much, he'd be one of the most efficient players in the nation, but he's shooting it really, really well. I mean, his effective field goal percentage is 61.5%. That's 57th in the nation. He's shooting 63.6% behind the arc, um, which would be awesome if he had like 100 attempts, but he has 22. But he's picking his spots and he's knocking them down. And he's shooting really well inside the arc. I mean, Zach Fremantle certainly has an argument to have been Xavier's MVP to this point if it's not Sule Boom. Um, if you remove him, you go down to... Jerome Hunter, who's having a great year um, as a bench piece. He's probably the sixth man of the year in the Big East, or he's at the very least in the conversation, but he's not Zach Fremantle. Um, he certainly is not going to shoot 63% behind the arc, not even in warmups. But not only would you you'd have a drop-off in the starting lineup, then you take Xavier's already thin bench and make it I don't know what, but you make it just Desmond Claude. I saw, he has saw a name. To play. <laughs> but, you know, Cesar Edwards, I not a Big East player for me. Um, I like the guy. I like the energy he brings. But, you know, he's just not that good. Uh, Deontay Miles, I'm reasonably certain, is still alive. I've not heard anything otherwise, but... He's clearly not going to play. I mean, he didn't even get off the bench against Creighton when the bench sort of emptied. Cam Kraft is only 6'6". He's not going to fill in down low. Um, I think he'd be the one who would pick up some minutes. We'll keep seeing the Kiki cameo. But if Zach Fremantle is genuinely hurt, and like you said, we just don't know, uh, this team is in a bad, bad spot. Um, you go from being a contender to win the Big East to hoping you can cobble something together to get you to the tournament. Um, so far as winning against Providence, uh, the key there is just going to be, well, for one, having Zach Fremantle healthy, but take care of the ball. Providence doesn't turn teams over at all, and their defense isn't particularly good. So as long as Xavier doesn't start doing dumb stuff with the ball, they should be able to exert themselves or impose themselves, I should say, on Providence and do what they need to do to get that win. Um, the other place where I think Providence could give us issues is going to be on the offensive glass. They hammer the offensive glass. Um, their whole team kind of goes to the rim. 
But Ed Croswell, who, by the way, sounds like a 60 year old white guy. Um, like, I feel like Ed Croswell is the name of somebody where you go to Lowe's and you don't know quite what you need to rebuild your deck. And they're like, Ed Croswell back in hardware can really help you out. And, you know, he's kind of that avuncular guy. That's not actually what Ed Croswell looks like. But that dude gets all over the offensive glass. He's going to be a real problem. Um, even if Zach Fremantle is so injury free that he's out there walking on sunshine. So offensive glass, don't turn the ball over are the keys to beating Providence. Yeah, I think it uh, obviously just basic roof maintenance uh, <laughs> would be another important key. Yeah, Providence, they have a lot of different uh, weapons. Um, it seems like they really do have different guys on different nights. Most of the time it's Bryce Hopkins, but if you take Bryce Hopkins away, it's not like they don't have anyone else who can get hot and carry them. But I agree, keeping Croswell um, off the glass and um, getting him out of the lane on defense, which is something Xavier did not do well against Ryan Kulkbrenner, um, I think is going to go a long way toward Xavier being able to win this one. I think Hopkins um, is a tough matchup, but I do think that he falls into the category of people that you can throw Colby Jones at. Um, you know, Colby Jones maybe against like a Tyler Kolek is not necessarily a viable solution for 20 minutes because Kolek is so quick. Uh, but Hopkins is six seven. He's a guy who is about Jones' size, and I think he's the kind of guy that you could throw Colby Jones on and um, hope that, you know, he can take him out of the game a little bit um, and then just try not to let Ed Croswell and, you know, his his silvery mustache ruin your evening. Uh, <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, I think that's the key to winning against Providence. I do think that if Fremantle is out, it really limits what this team can do. I'm a huge believer in Jerome Hunter, um, but I'm not a huge believer that Jerome Hunter can play 40 minutes of every single game and also sometimes sub in for himself. <laughs> so that is a that is where my belief in Jerome Hunter ends is at the physically impossible. So somebody else would need to step up like you. I don't know if it's Cesar Edwards. I hope it's Cesar Edwards, um, but. Yeah, it, it really, um, you take out who I think has been Xavier's best big this year. And uh, I mean, you do that to any team and it's going to really affect how far they can go. So uh, hopefully Zach is healthy or if he's not, he can get healthy because uh, I think he is a huge piece for Xavier. Uh, we got one from at Southern Muskie, um, which is a statement, but we're going to interact with this statement. The Creighton game officially proved that if we have to go into our deep further bench or into our depth further, sorry, goodness, I can't read. Um, Edwards, Kiki, Kraft, etc., we're completely screwed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> besides reloading this offseason, adding quality depth has to be a high priority. I think one of the things that Coach Miller showed this offseason was in prioritizing a guard and getting Sue Boom, who you looked at transfer rankings and Sue Boom was not ranked highly in, in a lot of transfer rankings during the offseason. I think a lot of people um, 
outside Xavier were maybe nonplussed when Xavier picked up Sule Boom. When you looked at, you know, Creighton got Baylor Shireman, who had been the Summit League Player of the Year. Providence picked up uh, Noah Locke from Louisville, and they picked up Bryce Hopkins from uh, Kentucky, who were both high major players. Um, I think Sule Boom and Bryce Hopkins are both kind of the the conversation for the best best transfer in the Big East. But I think that Coach Miller has kind of shown, um, like Coach Steele did early with Zach Hankins, that he has an eye for picking up somebody who maybe isn't as highly heralded, but can be a big contributor from the transfer portal. I think that's going to be key because you look at what Xavier brings back, there's a good chance that their top six all leave after this season. And uh, that leaves you Des Claude, <laughs> who has played significant minutes this year. And as much as Des showed a lot in that Connecticut game, again, I don't know that he showed the ability to play all five positions simultaneously. So, no, he's, you know, he's just not a 200 minutes a game guy. Um, that is one of his limitations. I mean, to kind of address Xavier's bench depth this year, you've got the seven. Next is Kiki Tandy. He played 10 minutes against Southern on December 13th. Uh, then he went, did not play, did not play. Two, four, two, did not play. Two, three, two, did not play. Six. And that is Xavier's eighth man off the bench. Um, Third man off the bench. Yeah, sorry, eighth man in the rotation. Third man off the bench. There just isn't any other depth. Uh, you know, Camp Craft has played in 12. Deontay Miles has actually played in 10 games. Um, I'd have lost money if you set me an over-under at eight uh, in the amount of games Deontay Miles has played this year. And speaking of eight, that's how many Cesar Edwards has played in. So there really isn't anybody else. So if Zach Fremantle actually has a stress fracture in his foot, he can have one of my feet for a while. Um because we need him. It's going to make it a little hard to run because I think mine are probably smaller than his, but he can figure it out. Wow. Look at you. You are such a... You offer him one foot? Come on, well, man. He doesn't need both of them, I don't think. If he has strict stress no, fracture, no, we have a problem. Yeah, well, here's the thing. You said it's a little hard to run because they'd be different sizes. You know what wouldn't be different sizes? Your feet. Give him both. <laughs> He's going to look ridiculous, but I guess that's a it's a viable alternative. I'm on my way. I'm just, I'm just, listen, I'm trying to solve problems here. And you're like, no, you can't have my other foot. I like it. Oh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think this offseason is going to be, Xavier is going to have to go into the transfer portal. They have a good class coming in. I, I think uh, Trey Green, uh, Dalen Swain, and Reed Ducharme are all guys who, um, you would think probably contribute fairly, fairly quickly, maybe not day one starters, but should be contributors as soon as they come in. I think Katienzi is a guy who's probably going to be more of a case of um, helping him develop into a, a rotation piece. But um, yeah, so I think that it's going to be a priority in the offseason. It has to be to bring in someone in the backcourt to um, 
to kind of help Claude and Crean along as they as they develop. Um, but I do think those guys both, I mean, they have really high ceilings. I think they'll be amazing uh, once they get their feet under them. So that brings us to our Xavier Player of the Week. Uh, we only have two votes this week. Um, but Brad, who have you gone with, with for your Xavier Player of the Week? Um, I went with Colby Jones. He had two pretty solid games um, quietly, as is his want. Um, it never seems like he's just taking a game over uh, like Sule did against Connecticut. The difference between Sule and Colby this week is that Colby actually showed up against Creighton as well. I mean, really shot the ball this week. He was 3-9 from behind the arc, which isn't excellent, but he was 11-21 inside the arc. Rebounded well. Against Connecticut, Colby ran into turnover problems um he just couldn't get his hands on the ball and like it just kept slipping through his hands but against Creighton even though that was a losing effort his his effort was still there he went for 13 four and four had a block and three steals as well and when he um was called on to kind of have to play everywhere because of the phantom foul trouble he did a good job with it um and honestly, I just don't think there's somebody else you can look at and say they had two good games this week. Yeah, I think that was the thing is against Connecticut, you know, uh, like against Creighton, Kunkel had a good game, but he scored the first basket against Connecticut and then didn't score again. I thought he handled the ball well in that game. But um, yeah, against Connecticut, Fremantle was limited, obviously, by the fact he fouled out when he didn't think he had. Um, he was good against Creighton. You know, Nunji was good against Connecticut. Really didn't have a good game against Creighton on either end. Um, again, maybe foul trouble contributed. But I thought Colby um, was solid in both games. So that's who I've gone with as well. The thing with Colby, I think he, um, yeah, he's, he's kind of a quieter player. Uh, if you can put up 14 and a half points a game five assists a game, um, you know, five rebounds a game and still be quiet. Um, but I think he is dependable for this team. And uh, in weeks like this, where there's such fluctuation between people's performances in one game to the next, like we saw with basically the entire team, um, he's a guy who's just really steady. He had a terrible game against DePaul. Um, where he just couldn't get anything to fall at the rim. Other than that, though, you can't really point to a game he's had this year and be like, wow, he was awful and, you know, nearly cost us that game. Um, he's just solid in, in pretty much every game he plays for Xavier. And I think that is why um, he maybe doesn't win player of the week a lot, but very few people would debate he's one of Xavier's two or three most important in probably best players. So um, that's who we've gone with for player of the week. Um, so we got a, a final quick hit here um, because we did, we did uh, bash on, on announcers a little bit. So if we're going to say bad things about announcers, we're also going to say good things about announcers, not the same announcers, um, but if you could pick one announcer to call a basketball college basketball game. Uh, Braden put the caveat it can't be Gus Johnson. I don't know. Well, I'd probably pick Gus Johnson. But anyway, who are you going to go with? Um, I'm going to go with Kevin Kugler. I really like him. Um, I end up listening to a lot of stuff because I work when 
games are on and and things like that. And Kevin Kugler is one of the main voices for Westwood One. He also picks games up for ESPN. I hear him a lot calling tournament games, and he does a really good job. He's one of those guys kind of like Gus Johnson, where he lets his enthusiasm for the sport come through. And I think where some guys kind of verge into either just repeating their catchphrases or almost like a, it seems like we have an older wave of guys who complain about the way the game is played now. Kevin Kugler just really enjoys basketball, and that comes through in the games. And I like listening to that because I love college ball and I want to hear somebody else who likes it. Tell me about it. Um, He's a really good announcer. Um, I like listening to him. He works his color guy in whoever that is really well. And he got his big break after Tom Brenneman's uh, faux pas, shall we call it, in which he started calling MLB games then for Fox as well. So he gets to do a lot of stuff. And anytime Kevin Kugler's on a call, I'll listen to it. Okay. Yeah, I think there are a lot of announcers that I, I generally like. You know, as far as guys that Xavier gets, I, I like Nick Ba um, as a, a color analyst. Um, played at Creighton, does not, you know, bludgeon you over the head with the fact that he played college basketball, but does work in, you know, some things that maybe you don't pick up on if, if you've not uh, been out on the court in a D1 game, which I've not. <laughs> um nor would I ever have in any circumstance in life. Uh, I like him. Um, I like Jason Benetti. Um, I know Bill Raftery is not everyone's cup of tea. He's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I do like him. I'm going to go, though. Um, I like Ian Eagle. And um, CBS, after this year, Jim Nance is no longer going to call the Final Four. And I think for once, um, they actually made a good call because they're having Ian Eagle take that over. He's maybe not the you know, name that Jim Nance is, and I'm sure that they could have gotten someone who is a bigger name. But as far as guys who have called the NCAA tournament for several years and guys who are familiar without necessarily you know, being uh, the big deal, uh, Ian Eagle is very solid, and, and I think he's another guy who he's enthusiastic about what he's calling, and that comes through rather than him being enthusiastic about, you know, making people uh, like him or fall in love with his catchphrase or whatever. So I'm going to go with him. I, I think he's good. And I think he has earned this um, shot at the the big time that he's getting. So uh, congratulations to you. I well, you're good. And used to call Cleveland Browns games uh, way back when, well, I should, shouldn't say way back when no one wanted to call Cleveland Browns games. That's still the case. <laughs> Way back when I actually watched Cleveland Browns games, though, because my hope hadn't been sapped out of me. And uh, I always loved that they had a kick returner named Jamel White. <laughs> and uh, he would always go, they call him track meet because he runs really fast every single week. Opening kickoff or the first kickoff going to the Browns. Every time he would drop that little nugget in there. And I would always be like, yeah, they do. It was like Matt Stainbrook driving driving Uber before that was a thing. So um, anyway, uh, good for you, Ian Eagle, and uh, good for us because we have made it through a two-man podcast, and it was gold, baby. Um, there is no part of that that was not fantastic. So uh, thank, thank you, everyone who uh, listened. Um, we'll be back with you guys next week. Xavier uh, has a couple of home games coming up. They host Providence and St. John's. So we will be back next week. 
to discuss whether that stupid drinking fountain at Hinkle had it coming.